Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Elizabeth Rosner, whose latest book, Nonfiction, is Survivor Cafe, The Legacy of Trauma and the Labyrinth of Memory. She is the author of four other books, The Speed of Light, Blue Nude, Gravity, and Electric City. Three of them are novels. Gravity is more poetry, memoir, right? I call it a poetry collection, but it has some prose in it as well. This book, Survivor Cafe, has a similarity to your novels. All of the novels deal in one way or another with trauma. And history. This book, obviously, you're writing it at a particular period of time. Mm -hmm. You wrote it at a particular period of time. But also, as the daughter of Holocaust survivors, this has been central to your work and I guess a lot of a lot of your life, I would yeah. guess. I think of it as really a core a core aspect of my identity, even though sometimes that feels awkward to say that I identify myself as the daughter of and in a way defined by events that happened before I was born. But it did really shape who I became and certainly has impacted my writing throughout my life. I have two friends, an old college roommate and then a friend of mine in Berkeley after I moved here. And both of them had parents who came out of the Holocaust. While neither Frank nor Lisa were defined by mm -hmm. those, it was always self-evident in their lives. Mm -hmm. They had to deal with their parents a certain way that mm -hmm. it wasn't the way the rest of us did. Right. In my childhood, my parents also had a lot of friends who were survivors of the war in one way or another. Some got out earlier than others did. So in some ways, I had kind of a peer group that was like me. But I grew up in a very American town in upstate New York where we were not the norm. I was a member of a very small minority. I was much more aware of the general uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant version of America that was all around me. So I did feel very, very different. And at the same time, I think over some period in my early teens maybe, I started feeling a sense of not just acceptance about being different, but that I, I valued being different. I felt like I had an important connection to a lot of more meaningful, bigger world understanding than some of my American friends who seemed in some ways less aware of both the past and even what was going on in our own lifetime. When you talk about that you had a wider view of the world, mm -hmm. right, because as the daughter of Holocaust survivors. Did it change you, say, when you went to Europe? The first time I went to Europe, I think I was around 20. I was already in college. I was already living in California. And 
of course, I had gone to Europe once as a seven-year-old with my family very briefly, but I remember very little of that. It was my real first time going to Europe when I was 20, and I went for three months. That was the first time that I really got the sense that I was walking through places that my parents had been, you know, that I was meeting people who had known my parents when my parents met each other in Sweden. And one thing that happened that was really striking was that these people that knew my parents very well, very intimately, and this was just a few years after the end of the war, they said to me, this one Swedish couple said to me, your father was so lucky he got out of Germany in time. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, oh, he was so lucky he didn't get sent to a concentration camp. And I said, my father was in Buchenwald, age 15 to 16. Of course he was in a camp. And they said, oh, no, he wasn't. We would have known that. He never told us that. And I thought, how could he have not spoken about it to them? Or how could they have been so wrong or forgotten? And so for me, it was this understanding that some of what I knew I could have only known because I got to hear about it long enough after the events had occurred that my parents could speak about it and that the immediacy of the war was a whole other kind of environment. There was a lot of kind of bending of time and place during that first trip to Europe, and it was also a trip in which I was too frightened to go to Germany on my own. When I was 21, I did go from Denmark to Switzerland on a train through Germany. We were actually at a train station in Bremen. I was terrified the whole time. Right. And yet, this was several years after the war, and right. I was still terrified, and I didn't want to go to Germany. And even now, when Germany is better, quote unquote, than the United States, it still sort of bothers me, and I'm wondering if there's something wrong with me there. You know, I hesitate to put words in your mouth, but I think you, too, carry some kind of cellular memory that both is and isn't your own. I think there is a kind of collective shared trauma that we all carry generationally, even if it wasn't literally transmitted to us parentally or by grandparents or by ancestors directly, and that that experience that you remember, you know, you didn't just imagine it. It was real to you. And that was how I felt when I was on a train in Germany. I've never been to Germany alone. I've only gone there with my father. Uh, I'm also reminded of Susan Faludi talking about her father in Hungary not being in a concentration camp but hiding out during the war and she didn't know about it until years and years later. Right. When I was first in Berkeley back in the late 80s and early 90s and I got involved with a group of other second generation we called ourselves descendants of Holocaust survivors when I started meeting people who said that they were 18 or 19 or something when they really first heard their parents' Holocaust stories, I was stunned because I always felt like I knew even before the stories were told to me. And yet I couldn't imagine what it was like to like sit around the dinner table. What did you talk about over dinner, if not 
the past? If not, you know, why is my mother cracking open chicken bones with her teeth? Oh, because she endured starvation when she was in hiding in Poland or when she was in the Vilna ghetto. Why was my father reading the newspaper, listening to the news, trying to field all of our conversations and eating at the same time? And why was he unable to eat very much even though he was hungry? Well, because of the war when he was in the concentration camp. I mean, everything related back to those periods, not in an obsessive way, but it was just part of the fabric of our lives. So for me to imagine or be unable to imagine what it was like for my peers to not hear those stories until they were older or not living at home, that was a mystery to me. I think everybody handles trauma differently, which we'll get into in this interview. I'm, I'm reminded that that friend of mine, Lisa, was Lisa Goldstein, who is a novelist, and her first novel was about the Holocaust and a werewolf, you know, in the forest because it was a fantasy. And there was no escaping that as a way to, I guess, deal with these demons. Well, my first novel, it turned out, was about a family in which there was that kind of silence because I was so fascinated to imagine my way into a variation on what I had experienced. And I also imagined in my fictional family, in the speed of light, that only the father had survived the Holocaust and that the mother was American and completely other. And part of that was because I was looking at two siblings in a family who had inherited that story very, very distinctly differently. And so I was trying to imagine how would that have been possible? Well, one identified more with this father and one identified more with the mother, not to oversimplify things. But I really was using my autobiographical, emotional autobiography to infuse my fiction, but I was also trying to reach outside of my known experience. And that's the other reason I included in The Speed of Light a character who was a very different kind of survivor of a, of a similar yet different kind of trauma. And that was a woman who was the sole survivor of the massacre of her village in El Salvador. So even in that first book of mine, I was wanting to write about the Holocaust and the aftermath of it. But I also didn't want to only write about the Holocaust. I was always interested in looking outside of that framework to see how did this connect me with others who had also suffered terrible things. Elizabeth Rosner, let's get on to Survivor Cafe itself. So you've written these four books, the book of poetry and the three novels. What prompted you? Was there anything that specifically prompted you to say, okay, it's time to write the nonfiction book? Well, we mentioned already that even in Gravity, I had some prose pieces, and those were very straight-up narrative pieces about visiting Germany with my father, for example. And then I had also published from time to time short essays or Huffington Post here and there, things like that. But it was when I took this most recent trip to Germany with my father in April of 2015 that it became acutely clear to me that we were approaching, we, all of us, were approaching a moment in which firsthand witnesses and survivors of the Holocaust, and I mean both survivors, liberators, even perpetrators, were all going to pass away soon, and that all of this history was now going to be held by subsequent generations. And I started really wanting 
to think hard about what did that obligate us to do? What, what did that obligate not just me to do with a personal inheritance, but what did I hope a multicultural legacy would look like and how would we keep it from fading away? And then the next thing I knew, <laughs> I was talking to my lifelong editor about this experience in Germany, and I told him about this event that these Germans, these third generation now Germans had created called Survivor Cafe. And he was the one who said, this is your next book. You have to write this now. At that point, had you taken notes during your three trips with the family and your father to Germany? Yeah, I had written most extensively, I would say, about the first trip, and that was the one in 1983 when it was just myself and my father. Germany was still divided. It was a, a really quite a harrowing trip for both of us. So I wrote about that then. And I would hearken back to it every once in a while in my memory. But we then made the trip in 1995, the five of us, my two siblings and both my parents and I, completely different experience. And I didn't write that much about that trip. And I think part of the reason I didn't write that much was that I hadn't quite figured out what it meant yet. And and usually I write to figure things out, but somehow it was a very murky experience. And it was diffused by the fact that my siblings were there and... Your mother refused to go to the event. Which I actually had forgotten until I looked back at the photographs years later in my memory. And this is a perfect example of how distorted memory can be. She was with us on the trip to Germany for sure. But when I look at the photographs of my father, my sister, my brother, and me on the day of the commemoration service at the concentration camp site, my mother is nowhere to be found in those images. And that's when I realized she didn't come with us that day. You know, I was thinking I'm going to change the subject here because something occurred to me when you were talking about the generation dying off and people wanting to preserve the memory. And I was thinking, okay, you know, 70, 80, 90 years after the event, it was the 1950s that all the Confederate statues got put up. At the same time as everyone who experienced the Civil War, certainly those in the South, were all dying off. And we look at them now, and of course, from our leftist perspective, we're seeing symbols of racism but on some level, not to give too much credit to it, maybe the people in the South are trying to memorialize something mm -hmm. that they perceive as something positive. It's a great investigation because it's complicated. How you choose to commemorate the past is anything but simple because, you know, we all know this sort of in this kind of cliched way, you know, History is always told by the victors and history versus her story. You know, like we, we already know that there are biases and there are whitewashing versions of the past. And as you say, you can't necessarily blame people for wanting to make sure that the past is preserved in some way that matters. But even now, you know, on the radio on the way over here, I heard someone talking about I, it was Barbara Lee, actually proposing that all of the Confederate statues 
in Washington, D.C. in particular right now, be removed and placed in a museum. You know, it's not that we're trying to erase the past. It's that we're trying to contextualize the past. And we're trying to ensure that a really thorough and honest investigation take place and that it not be assumed that people can look at a Confederate statue and say, oh, well, this isn't honoring this guy. This is just remembering this guy. It needs to be addressed in a really nuanced way. It's interesting that in the Trump administration of all places, this is when the statues are coming down. So ironic. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, beyond ironic. But I think what's also happening, and regardless of the administration, what's also happening is someone like Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative saying it is far too long to still be waiting for a museum of slavery. It is far too long to not be addressing the unresolved trauma collectively in America from slavery and from lynching and from the ongoing dehumanization of people of color in this country, we still are seeing the results of not addressing those things. Well, we certainly haven't fully addressed the Trail of Tears either. Exactly. Exactly. So as long as America stays in this, you can call it denial, which is, again, oversimplification, It's not pleasant to look at one's own mistakes. Every individual knows that from childhood on. We don't like being told we're wrong. We don't like being told we're in error. We don't like being told that we we screwed up or we did something actually that harmed others. And yet, if we don't really take a look at our own individual culpability, how can we ever hope to do it collectively? And vice versa is also true, that the more you do it collectively, the more willing you are to do it individually as well. We aren't going to die by acknowledging we were wrong. We did harm. We committed genocide against Native Americans, and we committed a crime against humanity by conducting slavery in this country and When I say we, I was born in this country at the end of the 1950s. I don't have to feel personally responsible for being a slave owner to feel like I, as an American, still have to take responsibility. There's also white privilege, too. I mean, it's still there. And I am a first-generation American. I'm a daughter of two Holocaust survivors, as we've been talking about already. It would be much more convenient for me to consider myself only on the victim side of the story. How could I ever be considered part of perpetration? And yet, there are times when somebody looking at me will only see me as a white American who grew up with a roof over my head and three meals a day and a great education. And, you know, I got really, really lucky. Elizabeth Rosner, what is epigenetics? I always feel the need to preface my answer to this question by saying I am not a geneticist because I'm sure I'm not really doing justice to the term. But as I understand it, epigenetics is the modification of DNA by way of trauma that is transmitted multi-generationally. So that when someone experiences trauma, some aspect of their DNA expression is being changed. And it usually, I think, shows up in cortisol levels, which are stress hormones, basically. And that what researchers are now finding is that 
second and third and fourth generation descendants of people who have been through trauma and whose DNA has been changed by it, these subsequent generations are displaying evidence of having PTSD from trauma they never directly experienced. And the way it started being looked at was scientists at Emory University in Atlanta took a group of mice, pre-adolescent mice, and they exposed them to the smell of cherry blossom and gave them an electric shock at the same time. And so the mice very quickly learned to associate this smell with pain. And so even when the shock was taken away, they would tremble and panic at the smell. Two, three, four generations of mice later, introducing the smell to these mice who had never smelled it made them panic. The only thing researchers could come up with was this had been genetically transmitted to them, that their cortisol levels, their DNA had somehow structurally been modified to make them associate that smell with danger. At the same time that the researchers were looking at that, researchers in Israel were looking at Holocaust survivor families and recognizing that grandchildren of survivors, great-grandchildren of survivors, Holocaust survivors, were showing signs of PTSD behaviorally, psychologically, emotionally, having never been inside a concentration camp. And so they were making this equation. They were saying, you know, we're still not exactly sure how it happens, but we believe it's happening. That would, on some level, mean that virtually every African-American alive today would be experiencing on an epigenetic level some element of the trauma of slavery that I might be experiencing it fourth generation or fifth generation a pogrom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and honestly, as I said, I don't feel qualified to say, you know, are researchers making some determination about how many generations this can go on? Is there something that can interrupt that transmission so that it stops after a certain number of generations? How widespread does this occur? You know, there are lots and lots of questions being asked about it. But I do believe, intuitively even, without being sort of empirical about it, that yes, all African Americans do carry some legacy of slavery. There are some African Americans who were not slaves. True. But I'm saying this in a general way because I think it actually isn't so literal as we're naming it. You know, I really do think, and again, I'm not an expert on Jung either, but Carl Jung talked about the collective unconscious, that we actually can hold memories and imagery and impacts from experiences we didn't have personally, individually. And so, you know, yes, if you're African-American and you came to this country recently, then yeah, your lineage wasn't in slavery in America, but maybe in Africa, there was a connection to slavery that you also carry from there. On some level, if we're talking about that, virtually everyone on the planet would be carrying some element of trauma. It's virtually impossible, especially given the fact that the past 70 years for large swaths of the world 
have been at peace in a way that they never were before. Because war trauma, as well as natural disaster, is always ongoing. And I would argue that within the past 70 years, there have also been phenomenal atrocities. Rwanda, Bosnia, Cambodia, Sudan, Syria. I mean, these are incredibly vivid and potent and horrifying genocidal experiences. So in Rwanda, for example, and I, I talk about it a little bit in the book, in four months, in a single year, 800,000 people, Tutsis primarily, were murdered by Hutus with machetes. So that level of atrocity across an entire nation reverberated out throughout the world also. About a year and a half ago, I spent a couple of days in Siem Reap in Cambodia to go to Angkor Wat. And apparently very few people go, but there's a small memorial right outside of Siem Reap. On one day, I went to the museum, and then the tuk-tuk driver took me up there. I was the only person Mm -hmm. at the Mm -hmm. memorial at the Mm -hmm. time. And he came over to me, and all there are are some pictures and a a stupa Mm -hmm. filled with skulls. Yeah. He came over, and everybody that I spoke with, the guy to Angkor Wat, the driver to Angkor Wat, and this tuk-tuk driver, all had stories to tell about family. His grandfather, the tuk-tuk driver, did not last long because he was high up with La Null, so he was one of the first ones killed. The entire city of Siem Reap is young people. And the Cambodian community, the Cambodian refugee community in California, for example, and in other parts of the United States on the East Coast as well. Massive, massive percentage of PTSD sufferers in that community because there are estimates of as many as one out of four Cambodians were murdered by the Khmer Rouge, 25% of the population. And that's a really rough guess. Nobody even really knows the numbers. So, again, you know, if you live in a community where there are that many Cambodian refugees suffering from severe post-trauma, how can that not affect you as their neighbor? And what you reference, you know, there is this thing they call death tourism. And and I have to say that as, as morbid as that sounds, some of what I understand about it also is, is a sincere willingness to understand some of the worst aspects of human history that this isn't some kind of joy ride people are taking. It, it means they really want to look at those dark places. For me, it was just feeling the need to be there and on some level in my head, memorialize what had happened, Right. if that makes sense. It does. And I really appreciate that you were willing to do that. I'm also not surprised that you were one of the few people or only people there. But I think that Again, my motivation for writing this book is not to pummel people with stories of suffering and torture and loss, but to remind people that there's a set of reasons that we are in the kind of chaos and trauma collectively, globally, that we are right now. And looking at the past because it informs the present is part of how we transform the future, is part of how we together help each other be more humane as opposed to inhumane because we are all of it. We are the perpetrators and the witnesses and the bystanders and the victims. 
Elizabeth Rosner, Charlottesville. How do the Holocaust survivors that you know, your father's still alive, mm-hmm. how do they deal with it? It's excruciating. And I wrote an op-ed for the San Francisco Chronicle about my reaction to Charlottesville. And I was with my father. I was actually visiting my father at the time that Charlottesville happened. We talked about it a lot. What I wrote was that, you know, many European refugees who came to America, like my parents, came here specifically because they felt nothing like the Holocaust could ever happen here. They didn't just feel it. They were certain of it, that America represented the opposite of that. America represented human dignity and freedom. I mean, my father in Buchenwald was liberated by the American army. The American army only represented good against evil, and Nazis would never, ever be welcome here in America, according to my parents and so many of their friends. I remember growing up wondering if I could trust that. You know, I didn't directly experience anti-Semitism growing up, but I knew about the Ku Klux Klan, and I knew that there were people calling themselves neo-Nazis, and I knew that they were here in America. So I questioned my father's conviction about, you know, there could be no place for Nazis here. And so when Charlottesville happened, it was way too blatant a reality check on that belief. It was a way of saying, maybe I was wrong about America. I mean, it's always been there. There was George Lincoln Rockwell. But we never saw a man like Jeff Sessions in charge of anything. Right. And that's a big difference. That's a big difference. Well, yeah. There were always these pockets where some kind of local leadership might pop up and be, you know, like I remember there was a neo-Nazi politician in San Diego not that long ago. Wasn't there a Metzger in San Diego who was a white supremacist? Right. An overt, avowed white supremacist. So I knew that there were local, regional pockets of America where white supremacists were out and proud, You know, they weren't in any way hiding their belief system. And yet this idea that at the federal level, in the highest office in the land, that there would be sympathy for and defense for and kind of acknowledgement of the righteousness of white supremacist ideology, even in my cynical belief system (laughs) about America, I did not think that could happen. And it's happened. And it's happening Elizabeth Rosner, researching this book, it's 250 pages, whatever. It could have been 1,000. Mm-hmm. What were the parameters you set for yourself? And I know part of it, of course, is that any story loses impact unless it's personal, mm-hmm. unless it's one-on-one. So mm-hmm. I guess that would be one way to ensure the book didn't get out of control. Well, I knew that my personal narrative was going to form the spine of the book and that the book had to sort of orbit around that. But I was also really sure that I didn't want to limit the scope to just my story. And as I said earlier, I didn't want to limit the conversation to only being about the Holocaust and only being about Europeans even. I recognized as I was researching the book, and it's by far my most research-based piece of writing, that every single day I was trying to complete the book, the book was growing. 
the book was, you know, kind of stretching way beyond my limits. And that's because almost every day it seemed like something new was happening in the world that I needed to address in the book because it was relevant to atrocity, dehumanization, aftermath. There were new memory studies coming out practically every week. There were new understandings of trauma coming out every week. So I started feeling overwhelmed. <laughs> and and actually, one of the definitions of PTSD is a blurring of the past and the present, uh, you know, like the, the past intruding into the present in ways that you can't control. It may sound like an exaggeration to say I was being traumatized by the research itself, but that feeling of overwhelm was part of my emotional, psychological makeup, too. That feeling of, I'm never going to be able to say everything there is to say on this subject. And when I would talk to people about what I was working on, they would say, well, you're going to write about Tibet, aren't you? And I would say, oh, my gosh, I want to, but I can't. There's no room. And they, and then they would say, but how much are you talking about the Native American genocide? And what about Bosnia? And what about, you know, and, and I would start to almost break down. So I felt like there was an urgency to this book that I felt personally that required me to not include everything. The urgency also came up, obviously, because you were writing this during the period of the election, right? Correct. And there was actually a section of the book in the epilogue that directly annotated the days leading up to the election and the days after the election, and we took that section out. But yeah, the urgency was we are in the midst of a national and global crisis around history and facing history and undoing all the progress we've made. What's the best scenario for dealing with trauma or even inherited trauma? Again, I, you know, my expertise is constrained by my not being a therapist and et cetera, et cetera. But I know that there are organizations and groups and therapeutic practices of all kinds that are really looking hard at that question. How do we address the trauma in this moment so that it doesn't continue to recur and and reverberate infinitely. And some of it involves actually looking at what already works. Cultures who take returning war veterans into a process of actively helping them restore their humanity, reintroducing them to family life and social life together in groups, helping them grieve, helping them make amends, living amends. I mean, what Rwanda is trying to do right now, Hutus and Tutsis are moving back into their neighborhoods together side by side. This isn't inherited trauma. They actually, some of these Hutus participated in the murder of their neighbors. So we have to look at what South Africa is doing with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Even looking inside a place like San Quentin, where they're doing groups of rapists are meeting with rape victims, not their own victims, but representative victims, so they can look each other in the eye and talk about the actual harm that was done and nothing so simple as apologizing for it, 
but making some kind of human recognition of the harm and the damage and and making commitments to living differently. So on very small scales, these things are happening. I was a participant in a long process of Jewish-German reconciliation, again, not with the perpetrators and the victims, but subsequent generations. I think therapeutically, there are approaches that say you first of all have to say to somebody who's suffering from PTSD, you are not making this up. I see that you suffer. I hear that your suffering is real. How can I help you? How can I help not trigger an episode for you that's traumatizing. I mean, even something as simple as a conversation I quote in the book between the wonderful poets Dorianne Locks and Lucille Clifton, when Dorianne innocently points to some trees to show Lucille Clifton how beautiful these trees are, and Lucille says, Dorianne, black people have a complicated relationship with trees. And for me to have heard that story and remember that I don't know what that's like for a black person to look at a tree where a lynching might have taken place. But I do know as a Jew what it's like when I hear people talk about turning on the gas or looking up at a shower head in a strange location. Or talking about a soup Nazi. Language is really powerful. And words themselves can trigger trauma. And so can objects and so can street corners. And that's why... Even something as simple as calling Vietnamese refugees boat people dehumanizes them a little bit. Even if you don't mean to be, you are. So to be really sensitive to language, to be really sensitive to one another, and to be empathetic toward one another and say, you know, I don't know anything about your story. Start by telling me your story so that I can know what you carry. Elizabeth Rosner, now you've written Survivor Cafe. Are you working on another novel? I am. I actually was working on another novel right before going to Germany in April of 2015, and that was a book I had to set aside in order to write this one, so I'm tiptoeing my way back to it. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>